Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to the podcast. I always thought owning a vacation home was hard work, from finding guests to just maintaining it. But with Vacasa, they put my vacation home to work for me, caring deeply for my home in every way. Best of all, since switching from my last property manager, Vacasa has been earning us over 20% more. Because it's not just a vacation home, it's a Vacasa home. Get your free vacation income estimate to see how much your vacation home can earn you. Call 470-900-4828 or visit vacasa.com slash free dash estimate. Socks are the number one most requested item at homeless shelters. Underwear second and shirts are third. At Bombas, socks were first, made with comfortable details for everyday wearing. Then underwear and shirts too, all designed to perfectly fit. At Bombas, every item you purchase means you're donating an essential clothing item to someone in need. One comfortable clothing item for you, one donated to someone in need. Bombas, comfort for all. Get 20% off your purchase at bombas.com slash comfy. Episode 55. You are listening to the new Glam Gal podcast, the podcast where style meets confidence. Conquer the frustration of trying on clothes and learn to dress and love the body you are in. There are no size or weight requirements here. I'm your host, Miss J. Join me, won't you? Hey, Glam Gal, welcome back to the podcast. This month, we are doing a live, ongoing coaching session. I'm inviting you into my fake salon, the salon we have in our heads. I'm asking you to sit on the couch with me, drink some tea, have a little coffee, a little sweet, a little snack, and then let's deep dive into all the things. In our first episode, we talked about what many of you ask me, why do I still feel fat? In the second episode, we talked about being beautiful and finally acknowledging that for yourself. And the last of our series for the month of July, we are going to talk about Judgy Wudgy was a bear. Judgy Wudgy had lots of hair. Now, I know that it is popular to say, don't judge there's so much judgment in that, right? I'm not judging, but like secretly, were you, honestly? So this week, we're going to talk about judgment. Super fun, right? (laughs) Here's why it's so important to talk about this. Not because I want to give you a lecture on not judging people. Not because I think it's not particularly stylish or charming to going around judging others. I want to talk about it because of all the negative net effect it has for you. What if judgment had nothing to do with the other person? Because it really doesn't. 
judgment, and I'm not talking in the legal sense or the biblical sense. I'm talking about the everyday social interaction meaning of judgment. It has no positive net effect for the person who's doing the judging. Now, I know some of you are going to come at me and you're going to be super committed to what about X person who's committed a crime? What about Y person who's done this horrible terror thing? What about Y person who is just evil? I mean, you're going to, you're going to throw up all that stuff. And I want to turn it back around to you. We're not talking about everyone else in the universe. We're talking about you and the judgments you have for others and how it has no net positive effect for yourself. And we're talking about this in the realm of social interactions. This is so important a topic because a lot of my glam gals come from a culture, a diet culture, where you are only allowed to take up space if you're less large than the largest lady in the room. So you enter a room and you're scanning for the quote-unquote fattest gal so you can determine if you're not her and then you're allowed to be comfortable and it's okay for you to be in the room with all the other humans. I know this happens because I coach all of you. Or you go in and you scan the room for the prettiest girl in the room and you compare yourself to her and you use her as sort of a measuring stick of like, well, how pretty is she? And if she's too pretty, am I going to be uncomfortable being in the same room as this girl that I've deemed to be too pretty? Okay, well, let me make myself feel better. I'm going to find the girl I find the ugliest in the room. So essentially what you're doing is you're going around and you're putting a numbering system on people's heads. Okay, well, so you're going to be a one and I'm going to assign you a two. And Joan, that bitch has always been a three. And well, you know, Sandy's kind of a 10, so I'm going to avoid her. And oh, Michelle, yeah, that Michelle's a one for sure. Like maybe we don't say that out loud. But when we categorize people and we judge them, we are essentially going around with our red lipstick and writing a number on their forehead. Here's the kicker, though. The truly self-confident, the truly stylish, they don't do any of that. You know why? Not because they have some sort of magic or they're vain or they're arrogant. The truly self-confident they don't need to compare themselves to anyone because they recognize that comparison is futile, pointless. And if you really come from a belief that everyone is 100% worthy, that everyone's tank is 100% full of beauty, everyone's beautiful, that everyone's worthwhile, that everyone's worth having compassion for, including ourselves, then comparison doesn't even make sense in that paradigm. What are you comparing to? A 10 to a 10? A 100 to a 100? Everyone's tank is full. If you come from a paradigm where you're allowed to take up space and so is every other gal, then you enter into a room with love and compassion. You enter into a room being your full self, and so is every other girl allowed to be her full self. No one's too much. No one's extra. In the words of Lizzo, we're all 100% that bitch. I mean, I love it. 
right? If you all truly were at that place, then there would be no need to be judgy wudgy. So how do we get to that place, right? How do we all get to the place where we all believe we're 100% that, that gal? Well, of course, there's going to be some mindset homework. When you start to notice yourself going into judgy-wudgy mode, I want you to remember that you're going to essentially judge others in areas where you're already most vulnerable yourself. And that you're just trying to buy yourself some momentary relief by judging the other gals in the room. So in my example, if we're at a fabulous party and you walk in and you look for the quote-unquote fattest lady in the room, it's because you yourself believe you're fat and that you're not allowed to take up space unless you're a certain size. It has nothing to do with that other gal. If you walk into the room and you're scanning for the prettiest face to see how you measure up, it's because you yourself don't fully believe that you're 100% beautiful or pretty yourself. If you're going into the room and you're judging someone as being too loud or too much, it's likely because you struggle with something in that area yourself. You either long to be a little more extroverted and you secretly judge those who are, or you're used to being the center of attention and no one else is allowed to take the spotlight from you. Ultimately, you're going to ask yourself, How does this judgment that I have connect to a thought that I have about myself? How does this connect to a belief I already have about myself or one that I wish I had? I want you to consider this because once you're able to see that your judgment is just a reflection of an inward judgment that you have of yourself, I'm asking you to do this exercise not because I want you to feel bad and then judge yourself for being judgy. That's not the point of this. I want you to see that we're all human. We all do this to some degree. It's just a matter of identifying what's really happening when we're doing it so that we can be equal parts amused by it, but also willing and ready to change it. So that we can have thoughts that create a net positive effect for ourselves, as opposed to perpetuating thoughts that have a net negative effect. There is no upside to looking for the fattest person in the room. There is no upside to judging yourself as being fatter or smaller than the other gal who you deem to be the fattest person in the room. There's no upside to that. There's no upside to looking for the prettiest face in the room only so you can judge her and yourself. There's no positive side effect of that. Instead, ask yourself, how does this closely relate to a belief or thought I already have about myself? How does this relate to a judgment I already have about myself? Oh, right, because I'm a human. That's amusing. Well, what do I want to think? How do I want to show up? Who do I want to be? And eventually, maybe you'll get to the place where you can borrow the thought and then fully own it and believe it, that we're all allowed to take up space. We're all full of beauty. We are all beautiful. We are all 100% worthy. There's no need to compare 100 to 100 or a 10 to a 10. It's futile. Now I can just go enjoy the other hundreds in the room. I can go enjoy being on a date with myself. 
I can enjoy my own company. I can sit in silence in my car. I can just chill. No nitpicking required. Think of how differently you would show up in the world if you fully believed that you were a hundred and so was the gal next to you. So, my darling glam gal, your mission this week, should you choose to accept it, is to start noticing when your judgy-wudgy, fuzzy-buzzy self starts throwing up some shade, starts saying judgmental things, redirect it back to you. How does this relate to a judgment I have about myself? Where can I find some amusement in my humanity? How do I want to turn this around? How do I want to show up? And your style homework is to start practicing the thought, I'm allowed to take up space, and so are all the other gals. There's no need to compare and despair because we are a room full of tens. I want you to try it on for size. Let me know how it goes. If anyone struggles with this, I want to hear how it's going for you or the funny stuff that your brain came up with. Because my Tallulah brain says some amazingly, hilariously mean, snarky things. And I have to remind her to play nice with the other humans. All right. If you need help with this, reach out at coach at If you enjoyed this podcast episode and you know a friend who would benefit from it, and you don't send it out in a judgy-wudgy way, you just know they would benefit, you can leave me a review on iTunes to make sure that the other glam gals can check out the podcast or send it to a friend. The podcast is available on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. All right, I've had so much fun making this series for you all, and I'm looking forward to August episodes and September. I have some amazing stuff in store for you all. All right, let's get it. Miss J out. You strive to innovate, to propel payments forward. But what if you could do even more, access more people, and add more value? With Discover Global Network, you can. Accepted in more than 200 countries, with over 270 million cardholders around the globe, we help you grow further, faster. As the world's fastest-growing payments network, see just how much progress we can make together. Discover Global Network. Accelerate progress. I love your vacation home. How much time do you spend here? As much as we want. And when we're not using it, we rent it out. Our amazing team cares for and markets it on all the major booking sites. What team does all that? Picasa. They manage everything, and I see it all on my phone. Plus, they've been earning us over 20% more after I switched from my last property manager. Your vacation home earned you that much? It's not a vacation home. It's a Vacasa home. Get your free vacation income estimate to see how much your vacation home can earn you. Call 800-544-0300 or visit vacasa.com. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store.
it's TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. Today, a historic look at how fashion and the long arm of the law have collided throughout history. In other words, law professor and fashionista Richard Thompson Ford shares his expertise on the literal fashion police. In his talk at TED at BCG in 2021, he sheds light on all the ways people still get in trouble for what they're wearing and why wardrobe means so much. You wouldn't put your teen athlete on the same field as the pros, so why would you take them to the same doctor? Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Orthopedics and Sports Medicine is Georgia's only nationally ranked program for teen athletes. Visit today at choa.org/teens. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Hello Monday. As the year winds to a close, a new work-life normal is emerging. How we work, where and when we work, and what work we're willing to do have all changed. Here to help break it all down is LinkedIn's Jesse Hempel and her podcast, Hello Monday. Hello Monday is for listeners who are looking to grow their professional lives and take ownership over their careers. Through each episode, listeners will learn they have more agency than ever before when it comes to changing their circumstances. If you want more from your professional life, whether it's a career pivot, a promotion, or even a first job, Hello Monday is here to help show you how. Listen and subscribe to Hello Monday with Jesse Hempel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite. Pods. In 1565, a man named Richard Waldman was arrested in London for wearing what the authorities described as a very monstrous and great, outrageous pair of trunk hose. For those of you who don't already have a pair of these in your closet, uh, trunk hose are the, these puffy trousers, and they were all the rage in men's fashion in Renaissance England but they could get you into trouble. Walwyn had his pants confiscated by the authorities and exhibited in a public place as, I quote, an example of extreme folly. Laws like this weren't unique to Tudor-era England. In fact, the fashion police were hard at work all over Europe at this period in history. In England, France, Spain, and in cities up and down the Italian peninsula, the authorities were passing laws about what people could wear, sometimes dozens in a single year, in order to keep up with ever-changing fashions. Now, okay, I imagine you're all thinking, well, that's an interesting history lesson, but what does it have to do with us today? That's like bloodletting or trial by ordeal. It's not the sort of thing we do in today's enlightened society. But actually we do. In fact, even in the 21st century, people regularly lose their jobs, kids are sent home from school, People are kept off airplanes and other types of public transportation. And sometimes people are even jailed for what they're wearing. A couple of examples. In 2015, a high school student in Kentucky named Stephanie Dunn was sent home from school for wearing a scandalously revealing top that revealed her collarbones. And in 2012, an Alabama judge sentenced someone to jail for wearing sagging pants. You are in contempt of court, the judge said, because you showed your butt in court. (laughs) I'm a law professor, and I work on questions of civil rights and racial justice and gender equity. And 
Over the course of my career, I've been surprised at just how many legal disputes involve what people are wearing. And all of these lawsuits over dress and dress codes got me thinking that there's a lot more going on with our attire than just making a fashion statement. So I decided to look into the history of rules and laws around clothing to try to figure out what's really at stake. And my research took me all the way back to the late Middle Ages. I found that these kinds of laws and rules really got started with the growth of cities when strangers began to come together and needed a way to size each other up quickly and on sight. And fashion became a kind of shorthand for status and identity and belonging. The elite used fashion in order to assert their social superiority and high status and position. And the average person used fashion as a way to challenge authority or to climb the social ladder. Fashion was a type of credential, and wearing the wrong clothing could be considered a type of fraud. For instance, the Florentine patriarch Cosimo de' Medici once said, one can make a gentleman from two yards of red silk. And this worry about the fraudulent use of fashion led the elite to pass laws that held that only they could wear the most high status and luxurious fashions. So things like jewels, precious metals, fur, and red silk were restricted by law to the aristocracy and royalty. And in a way, it's not all that different today. Even today, we use clothing and fashion as a way to signal identity and status and belonging. Whether it's the expensive high fashions you might find on Madison Avenue or the edgy styles of an urban street culture. So maybe it's not surprising that we also judge each other in part based on what we're wearing. The problem is that we're not always very good at it. We can make serious mistakes that can have real consequences. So I mean, we're pretty good when we're dealing with people who are a lot like ourselves. So I'm not bad at uh, evaluating the wardrobes of college professors, lawyers, um, artsy types who live in big cities. But we're not so good when it comes to dealing with people from other walks of life. Here's an example. A former student of mine who was the first in her family to attend college told me this. She got a job interview, and she really wanted the job, and so she wore her very best dress to the interview. The problem was when she got there, the other people in the office thought her dress looked like a party dress. So they thought she was dressed up to go clubbing afterwards later in the evening and wasn't that serious about the job. They misread her clothing and therefore they misread her motivations. Another problem is that a lot of our ideas about professionalism were established when large groups of people were excluded from the professions. And as a consequence, those groups have a harder time finding something that looks professional and is appropriate for them. Just think of all the grief Hillary Clinton got about her pantsuits. Bill Clinton never had those problems. And women of color often suffer under dress and grooming codes that were based on the hair texture common to white people. So a lot of workplace dress codes still forbid braids and locks, 
styles that are well-suited to the texture of African-Americans' hair. And women in those workplaces face a cruel choice. They either need to straighten their hair with harsh chemicals or cut most of it off. That's just insulting. And it requires a sacrifice of these types of women that other people never have to make in order to be considered professional. And finally, some of our ideas about what's appropriate are based on stereotypes. And so, for instance, a lot of workplace dress codes still require women to wear high-heeled shoes. And women from all over the world have started to push back against these kind of dress codes. So, for instance, a woman in London circulated a petition against workplace dress codes requiring high heels, and it got all the way to Parliament. Women at the Cannes Film Festival went barefoot in order to protest a dress code that would have required them to wear high heels. And uh, women in Japan have actually started a social movement that has gotten the name Kutu. It's kind of a nod to hashtag MeToo, but Kutu means shoe pain in Japanese. So, okay, at this point you're probably thinking, wouldn't it be better if no one cared about any of this stuff? You know, maybe we should all be like Mark Zuckerberg, who just wears a gray T-shirt every day. But here's what he said about why he wears that gray T-shirt. He said, I'm not doing my job if I spend any of my energy on things that are silly or frivolous. And that's my reason for wearing a gray T-shirt every day. So that doesn't quite sound like somebody who doesn't care about what people are wearing. Instead, it sounds like he's saying that people who dress fashionably are silly and frivolous and aren't doing their jobs. That gray T-shirt's suddenly not a matter of indifference. It's become a signal of moral virtue in the work ethic. And that can just be a new kind of dress code. In fact, on cue, when Marissa Mayer, the CEO of Yahoo, wore a fashionable dress for a fashion magazine spread, the response was harsh. One commentator said, she looks like she's relaxing and on vacation while everyone else is doing work. So pretending you don't care about what people wear can turn into just a more subtle and insidious form of dress code. And in fact, getting rid of the written dress code sometimes leads to an unwritten dress code that's equally harsh or maybe even more restrictive. So for instance, the um, investment bank Goldman Sachs got rid of its formal business dress code in 2019. But the management had to add this, we all know what is and is not appropriate for the workplace. <laughs> and as a consequence, some people started to think maybe getting rid of the dress code is some kind of a test to smoke out people who aren't savvy enough to figure out what's appropriate all on their own. And in fact, a lot of people in banking, after these dress codes went away, um, gravitated toward a new unwritten dress code that was equally, if not more, uniform. In fact, there's an Instagram page about it called the Midtown Uniform. There's no dress code, but everyone's wearing exactly the same thing out of fear of looking like someone who doesn't know what is or is not appropriate. So, you know, trying to pretend that we don't care about what people wear, when we so obviously do, isn't the answer. And let's face it, sometimes it makes sense to draw conclusions from what people are wearing. But 
our gut reactions are often informed by stereotypes and subconscious biases and limited experiences or limited perspectives. So whether it's writing a dress code or evaluating a stranger, let's all try to check our biases before we call the fashion police. Thanks. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. and Speakeasy with Chef Justice Putnam. Netrootsradio.com We do have a projected winner in the election for governor of New Jersey. NBC is projecting the incumbent Democratic governor, Phil Murphy, has won re-election there. And as we just said, it is the first time a Democrat has won re-election to the governorship of New Jersey since 1977. Polls indicated that Governor Murphy had a comfortable lead going into the election day, as we were just saying. But on local television in New Jersey, Governor Murphy was the star in his opponent's TV ads.
And I would say this, if you're a one-issue voter and tax rate is your issue, either a family or a business, we're probably not your state. We're probably not your state. We're probably not your state. He actually said, if you're a one-issue voter and taxes are your issue, then we're probably not your state. I, I, I've never heard a politician say anything like that. In virtually all of the analysis I've heard about last night's elections, no one, no one seems to be blaming the candidates for doing worse than expected. New Jersey is one of the most heavily taxed states in the country, and the people of New Jersey know that. For New Jersey's governor ever to sound like he doesn't care about the tax burden in New Jersey is political malpractice in the extreme. One sentence said out loud can destroy a political campaign. Truth is, Donald Trump and the Republican Congress raised taxes dramatically in New Jersey. The biggest tax increase New Jersey taxpayers have ever seen. And they did that by eliminating New Jersey taxpayers' right to deduct the full amount of their state and local taxes. Phil Murphy was running against a candidate who was endorsed by the president who did that to New Jersey taxpayers. One sentence apparently did fatal damage to Terry McAuliffe's campaign for governor in Virginia. Terry McAuliffe was trying to do something that had never been done before in history. He was a Democrat trying to win a second term as governor in Virginia as a Democrat. State of Virginia doesn't like looking at or listening to governors for more than four years, and it pretty much never does that. So the state of Virginia limits governors to one four-year term. They're not allowed to run for re-election. But after someone else has served as governor, they can come back and try again, but very few of them do. Only one Virginia governor has ever succeeded in that quest in 1965. Democrat Mills Godwin won the election for governor, and in 1973 he came back and won the election for governor after switching parties and running as a Republican when he won the second time. Terry McAuliffe has now run for governor of Virginia three times and won only once. But because he was a massive fundraiser for the Clintons before he became a candidate himself and then was also a massive fundraiser as a candidate, he was the Democratic nominee for governor once again this year in the state of Virginia. And in the final debate, in the middle of a messy back and forth about what books should be allowed in public schools in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe held his own very well and he did a reasonably good job in his response even got applause at the end of his full response, but in the middle of it, he spoke a sentence extemporaneously on TV that energized the Republican campaign. Terry McAuliffe said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Polls indicated that enough parents in Virginia disagreed with that to create a surge of support for the Republican candidate in the final days of the campaign. If Terry McAuliffe did not include that one sentence in his response in that debate, the outcome of the election might be different. But no one seems to be blaming Terry McAuliffe for losing his election. What if the Democrats had a candidate who did not slip up in the middle of a debate? More blame 
for the outcomes of the elections is being assigned to President Biden than to the candidates themselves. Do you take some responsibility and do you think that Terry McAuliffe would have won if your agenda had passed before Election Day? Well, uh, I think we should have should have passed before Election Day, but I'm not sure that I would be able to have changed the number of very conservative folks who turned out in the red districts who were Trump voters. But maybe, maybe. Today, Virginia's Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, who was reelected in 2018, did not blame Terry McAuliffe for his loss. Look, congressional Dems start tearing off. I mean, I'm going to be blunt. It's humbling to say it, but if uh, we had been able to deliver infrastructure and reconciliation in mid-October, he could have sold universal pre-K, affordable child care, infrastructure, creating jobs. So Democrats control both houses. They have to act like they have to be disciplined, have to give results. And the, uh, you know, our, our Leading off our discussion tonight is Anat Shankar Osario, founder of ASO Communications and Stuart Stevens, veteran of five Republican presidential campaigns. He is the author of It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Uh, and Stuart, I'm old fashioned. I actually think the candidate has something to do with the outcome uh, of elections. Why isn't there more focus on what each of these Democratic candidates for governor did uh, to basically help the other campaign. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, these races are going to be overblown for the impact. I mean, I worked in these successful Republican governor races in all these blue states, uh, your home state of Massachusetts, uh, New Jersey. I did Chris Christie's races, uh, Massachusetts, Vermont, Maryland, Larry Hogan. None of those states uh, were followed a Republican winning by the states going uh, Democratic and presidential race. Governor's races are just strange, interesting, uh, usually unique set of circumstances. Um, candidate quality really matters. I think had Taylor McAuliffe campaign gone out and defined Glenn Youngkin from the very beginning when he went through this sort of faux primary, but he couldn't have gotten through that primary without claiming to support Donald Trump, without getting endorsed by Donald Trump. Had they defined him from the beginning, the race will ultimately be about something. Every race is. They allowed it to become about the issue dynamic that was unfavorable to them. Uh, and I, communication is your focus. And I, and I want to, so I want to get your reaction to these two things that these two governors said. First of all, Governor New Jersey saying, if you care about taxes that much, uh, you know, vote for, in effect, you know, vote for someone else or move to another state. Uh, and then uh, that that sentence that Terry McAuliffe spoke about, uh, you know, I don't think parents should be telling the schools, you know, what to teach. Uh, a very simple sentence. He said a lot of other things around it, but that one sentence jumped out. Uh, what should these candidates be saying in situations like that? Yeah, in the McAuliffe case, which I'll take first, even though you presented second, there's roughly a hundred things that we can be saying about this intentional and longstanding right-wing race baiting, their divide in order to conquer strategy that is back, back, back again. Every single time it's here in a new form, this time it is the straw man critical race theory. What you say is simply, most of us, no matter where we come from, 
what our zip code and what our color, want our kids to be told the honest truth of our history, to reckon with the mistakes of our past, to understand the present in order to build a better future. But today, a handful of politicians and my opponent here, Youngkin, they want to divide us. They want to spin lies about what our teachers are teaching while they endanger our kids by refusing masks and spreading stories about vaccines. They hope we'll look the other way while they vote to defund the schools that every single one of our kids need. By standing together and demanding that our kids deserve the truth of our history so that they can acknowledge where we've been and all they can become, we can make this a place where every single kid has the freedom to learn. You have to call out the other side, not just for what they're doing, but the motivation behind it. It is Thursday, the 4th of November of 2021, and you are in West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. I am your chef de cuisine, Justice Putnam. Gunner, the English Bulldog, is our snoozing sous chef. And our daily special is Metro Shrimp and Grits Thursdays. A little bit of jambalaya, a little bit of spice in your life. How are you? Uh, we've made it to Thursday, which means that we have one more day of the week till we are at, well, what's normally called the end of the week. So we're almost there. Hey, are we still upset about the election? Because, I look, we held on to New Jersey. That hasn't been done for a very long time. I keep reading stories about how we did so terribly down ticket, but I don't think we did. Picked up quite a few mayor positions. Uh... You know, it'd be nice to, to capture, is that the proper term, some governorships. That would be nice. But, uh, you know, uh, Democrats did pretty well, even, even for dog catcher. I think that we need to understand that the down ticket uh, races, in some cases, are much more important than the national ones or the nationally recognized ones. So, uh, yeah, we could say that the death knell of the Democratic Party is manifested by a loss in Virginia, but I wouldn't go that far. I know that a lot of the media wants to believe that. They do. And I guess Joe Biden continues to be red, Joe Biden, because he's such a socialist. <laughs> he had four, guy, four years of the guy. The former guy just effing up America right and left. But no, no, he wasn't a drag on the economy. <laughs> yes, he was. And um, I'm a bit concerned. There's a CNN story out. Uh, Brianna Keeler had it. She's all upset about the cost of milk. <laughs> well, let's pick a volatile commodity. Why don't we? Milk hasn't been below 199 for over 25 years, on average. Yeah, I know that there's been some stores I've been reading. Oh, well, you know, right, right around the beginning of the pandemic, there was a store in Timbuktu, Texas, that had it for 199. Yeah, well, we're talking about the national average. It hasn't been below 199 in over 25 years. And uh, milk, as I just mentioned, is a volatile commodity. Why don't we choose something else to, uh, you know, to uh, determine the effects on the average family? 
Now, I don't know why CNN found it in their infinite wisdom that they think the average family has enough kids where they're drinking 12 gallons of milk a week. Or shall I say using? Because, you know, sometimes milk is used for baking. But 12 gallons of milk a week for your family? I think that maybe that might be the height of irresponsibility, wouldn't it? How many times have we heard that SNAP benefits to those people are just baby factories? Why do we have to give our hard-earned money to that? Well, why does a farmer have to give their hard-earned money up to a family who's whining about spending more than one ninety-nine a gallon? I know it's about three twenty-nine, maybe more, but still. <laughs> What about the social responsibility that those folks decided not to follow? They're whining about their family having to spend so much money on 12 gallons of milk a week. (laughs) And CNN isn't saying, well, well, gee, what about these baby factory white people? These Christians? Yes, pumping out the babies. Yeah, the same people whining about the cost of 12 gallons of milk a week are the same ones trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. I guess that's a Venn diagram in the making. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's just It did kind of crack me up when I read 12 gallons of milk a week. No, I, we, we were big eaters when I was growing up. Uh but uh, 12 gallons is a lot. <laughs> I just, I mean, come on. Okay. No snap benefits for you. But the people that have uh, enough kids that they need to buy 12 gallons of milk a week. Oh, no. They're just, they're just the average family. I don't think so. Okay. Um, what else is going on in the world? There's plenty. I'm getting a little upset about this Rittenhouse judge. You know, he went on a riff today, apparently, or at least I read an article today, that he went on a riff about, uh, uh, to the jury, he was giving them a lesson on heresy. Or, I'm sorry, hearsay. (laughs) Heresy. I would say he's a heretic. But anyway, he was giving a a, uh, a lesson on hearsay. And, uh then invoke the trial of Paul. Rittenhouse is like Paul? Come on. Now, I know that Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul, a very contemptible figure. And I would argue that he was not any less contemptible as being Paul. But that's just me. Anyway, Rittenhouse was no Paul. And is no Paul. (laughs) Past tense, he's still here. And uh, he's a little Nazi youngin. And I know that I have people on my case saying, he didn't carry a gun illegally across state lines, and he only took took like about 15 miles to get across the state line. Well, crossing the state line is crossing the state line. And he acquired a weapon, as I mentioned yesterday at yesterday's show. He acquired a weapon in Wisconsin illegally 
and used it illegally to murder people. And now we have a judge that says that those people he murdered cannot be called victims, but they can be called rioters. And he's upset at CNN. (laughs) A lot of us are. But in this case, it's highly unwarranted. He's upset at CNN. Especially Jeffrey Tubin, apparently. He named Jeffrey Tubin in court. <laughs> Complaining that CNN has been criticizing his judgeship and specifically uh, saying that uh, you can't refer to uh, those that were murdered by Rittenhouse's victims, only rioters, arsonists, etc. Thieves, I think that's the other one. Looters, looters. And none of them, you know, they're dead. Okay, so we're going to put them on trial where they can't defend themselves. There's there's no evidence that they started a fire. There's plenty of evidence that Proud Boys uh, working with the cops did. There's no evidence they looted, but there's a lot of evidence that Proud Boys working for the cops did. Let's be clear. But this judge who has a long history of inflammatory judging, uh, wants to blame CNN for criticizing his judging. Should he really be the one judging? Especially in this case. I don't think he's going to get recused. Any... Any dealings with this judge about this case will obviously be done way after the fact. And we already know what will happen. Nothing. Because nothing has happened before with this guy. So they got their Judge Roy Bean judge. Hang him high. And I'm not talking about Rittenhouse. I'm talking about the rioters, arsonists, and looters who, where there's no evidence of any of those people arsoning, rioting, or looting. Let's also remember that one of the people that Rittenhouse shot was shot in the back. So don't give me this self-defense BS. And anyway, he was an active shooter. How would it have been any different if he was in a school shooting up and somebody came at him with a skateboard? Yeah, well, I have some terms for this particular judge as as descriptions. And he really shouldn't be sitting on the bench, especially for this trial. And maybe for all trials, he is unfit to be a judge. Is that in this reporter's opinion? Of course it is. But I think the facts warrant it. What else? Oh, my gosh. Um, These uh, professors that are being prevented from giving expert testimony in Florida, or these Florida professors who are precluded by their universities from giving expert testimony on voting rights. And now it's come to light that a Marco Rubio-aligned uh, professor, who I guess was friends with Rubio, or they taught a class together way back, has been giving lots of expert testimony against 
voting rights. And yet eight professors have been denied uh, the opportunity to give expert testimony in trials for voting rights because it would make DeSantis look bad. They work for DeSantis, apparently, and you don't criticize the boss, especially in court. Is that a democracy? I don't think so. I do not think so. Well, we do have a curated show here for you here at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, so we might as well run down what we have curated for you today. Well, at the top, as I mentioned, that was Lawrence breaking it down with his with the crew or panel that a single sentence can destroy a campaign. It doesn't take much. Some people call them gaffes. Well... They could be campaign killers, too, and they sometimes are. Yes, they are. On the rest of the menu, the Justice Department is stepping up its effort to combat ransomware and cybercrime. The feds are seeking tougher sentences for military veterans who stormed the Capitol. Uh, they're letting all the others out on uh, their own recognizance because, oh, they have health issues. Okay. And... Prosecutors working to convict Kyle Rittenhouse introduced as evidence surveillance video taken from an FBI airplane circling thousands of feet above the chaos. We'll see what the judge does with it. After the break, we move to the chef's table where a COVID-19 surge shows no signs of abating in Russia. And an international rights watchdog named El Salvador, the most unsafe country for women in Latin America and the Caribbean. All that and more on West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Bon Appetit. Radio.com. To the right of the page is our chat room link, and the chat room is monitored by Kelly Lincoln. Thank you, Kelly. To the left of that chat room link near the bottom of our homepage at netrootsradio.com, to the left of the page there, is the link to our Patreon site. And if you could become a recurring Patreon of Netroots Radio, your recurring patronage helps us pay our bills and fly under the radar and continue this powerhouse of resistance against the Nazi takeover of the United States of America. If you could afford an espresso-type coffee drink, and if you could afford to send those funds our way once a month, that will help us pay our bills, get the needed software upgrades and machinery that seems to always be breaking down, almost like planned obsolescence. And anyway, uh, that uh, we get that taken care of and also <laughs> pay our bills. 
and then we're able to continue our civic duty as the founders originally intended. So thank you for your generosity and thank you for your generosity in the future because we need it. That's no joke. If you would like to follow Netroots Radio on Twitter, go to at Netroots Radio. Thank you, Tom, for taking care of that. And you can follow me on Twitter at Justice Putnam. I post the show notes and links diary on Daily Co's about 10 minutes before showtime. And then get that linked up on Twitter and those other social media platforms. You know who they are. We all do. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Cookbook West. And please do pick up podcasts by way of Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeart, YouTube, iTunes, etc., etc., etc. Okay, this first offering here in the Bistro Cafe part of this salon that we call West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy is out of the Associated Press by Eric Tucker. The Justice Department is stepping up actions to combat ransomware and cybercrime through arrests and other actions. Its number two official told the AP as the Biden administration escalates its response to what it regards as an urgent economic and national security threat. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco said that in the days and weeks to come, you're going to see more arrests, more seizures of ransom payments to hackers, and additional law enforcement operations. If you come for us, we're going to come for you, Monaco said in an interview with AP this week. She declined to offer specifics about who in particular might face prosecution. The actions are intended to build off steps taken in recent months, including the recent extradition to the U.S. of a suspected Russian cyber criminal and the seizure in June of $2.3 million in cryptocurrency paid to hackers. They come as the U.S. continues to endure what Monaco called a steady drumbeat of attacks despite President Joe Biden's admonitions last summer to Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin after a spate of lucrative attacks linked to Russian-backed hacking gangs. We have not seen a material change in the landscape. Only time will tell as to what Russia may do on this front, Monaco said. Another official uh, National Cyber Director Chris Inglis painted a rosier picture, telling lawmakers yesterday, Wednesday, that the U.S. had seen a, quote, discernible decrease, end quote, in attacks emanating from Russia, but that it was too soon to say why. Because Joe's been, or I'm sorry, the uh, CIA head has been meeting with uh, Vlad and, and the, his counterparts over there trying to, well, you know, find some common ground. We'll see about that common ground. Monaco added, though, we are not going to stop. We are going to continue to press forward to hold accountable those who seek to go after our industries, hold their data hostage, and threaten economic security, national security, and personal security. Monaco is a longtime fixture in Washington law enforcement, having served as an advisor to Robert Mueller when he was FBI director and as head of the Justice Department's National Security Division. She was a White House official in 2014 when the Justice Department brought a first-of-its-kind indictment against Chinese government hackers. Monaco's current position 
with oversight of the FBI and other Justice Department components, has made her a key player in U.S. government efforts against ransomware. That fight has defied easy solutions given the sheer volume of high-dollar attacks and the ease with which hackers have penetrated private companies and government agencies alike. How much lasting impact the latest actions will have is also unclear. Though not a new phenomenon, ransomware attacks, in which hackers lock up and encrypt data and demand often exorbitant sums to release it to victims, have exploded in the last year with breaches affecting vital infrastructure and global corporations. Colonial Pipeline, which supplies roughly half the fuel consumed on the East Coast, paid more than $4 million after a May attack that led it to halt operations, though the Justice Department clawed the majority of it back by gaining access to the cryptocurrency wallet of the culprits known as Darkseid, the public should expect to see more seizures, Monaco said. JBS, the world's largest meat producer, paid $11 million in June following a hack by a Russian group known as Revel, which... Weeks later, carried out what's believed to be the largest single ransomware attack on record, largely through firms that remotely manage IT infrastructure for multiple customers. The splashy attacks elevated ransomware as an urgent national security priority, while the administration scrambled to stem the onslaught. Inside the Justice Department, officials in April formed a ransomware task force of prosecutors and agents, and they've directed U.S. attorney offices to report ransomware cases to Washington, just as they would terrorism attacks. It has also tried prosecutions, extraditing from South Korea last month, an accused Russian hacker, Vladimir Dunev, who prosecutors say participated in a cyber gang whose malicious software... TrickBot infected millions of computers. Still, holding foreign hackers accountable in the U.S. is notoriously difficult, and ransomware gangs are abundant. Even if a recent attacks have not generated the same publicity as the ones last spring, Monaco said there's been no discernible change in behavior by opportunistic hackers still targeting a range of industries with attacks that threaten to paralyze crucial business operations or force multi-million dollar payouts. Associated Press brings us this next offering here in the Bistro Cafe of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, Metro Shrimp and Grist Thursdays. During his 27 years in the U.S. Army, Leonard Grupo joined the Special Forces, served in four war zones, and led a team of combat medics in Iraq before retiring in 2013 as a lieutenant colonel. During his six minutes inside the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 
Grupo joined a slew of other military veterans as a mob of pro-Trump rioters carried out an unparalleled assault on the bastion of American democracy. He's among dozens of veterans and active service members charged in connection with the insurrection. Now, cases like his are presenting a thorny question for federal judges to consider when they sentence veterans who stormed the Capitol. Do they deserve leniency because they served their country or tougher punishment because they swore an oath to defend it? The Justice Department has adopted the latter position. In at least five cases so far, prosecutors have cited a rioter's military service as a factor in favor of a jail sentence or house arrest. Prosecutors have repeatedly maintained that veteran service, while commendable, made their actions on January 6th more egregious. The participation of veterans in the riot was particularly shocking because some of them apparently used training they received in the U.S. military against their own government to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. Several veterans are among the far-right extremists charged with plotting coordinated attacks on the Capitol, including Oathkeeper members who marched up the Capitol steps in a stack formation used by military infantrymen. Prosecutors' arguments about rioters' military service didn't sway one of the first judges to hear them at Grupo's sentencing hearing last Friday. I don't view his military service that way. I just can't bring myself to do it. Chief U.S. District Judge Burl Howell said before sentencing Grupo to two years of probation, including 90 days of house arrest, a prosecutor argued that Grupo's military service supported the Justice Department's recommendation for a 30-day jail sentence. Assistant U.S. Attorney Hava Morell said Grupo, age 56 of New Mexico, was trained to recognize the obvious danger at the Capitol and to assist rather than harm. But the fact that he did receive that training and the fact that he intentionally overlooked his oath to commit one of the most destructive acts against our Constitution and our democracy, that does affect the government's view of his conduct, she said. Defense attorney Daniel Lindsay argued his client's service to the country shouldn't be used against him. He said Grupo initially wanted to keep quiet about his military service because he felt he had dishonored it. And he did, Howell objected. Let's not mince words. But the judge said she was surprised by the Justice Department's position because she believes most Americans would have enormous respect for Grupo service. And it's not just because I grew up on military bases around the world, Howell added. In most criminal cases, judges typically view a defendant's military service as a mitigating factor that favors leniency, said James Markham, a professor of public law and government at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. But he recognizes how the Justice Department could conclude that military that rioters with military experience should be held to a higher standard than those without it. It's obviously not related to their military service directly, but it's also not entirely conceptually unrelated. That somebody who was a veteran or who or had military service could be viewed as having a more refined understanding of the importance of civilian control and electoral stability, said Markham, a lawyer and Air Force veteran. 
More than 650 people have been charged in the January 6th attack. Some of the rioters facing the most serious charges, including members of the far-right extremist groups, have military backgrounds. A handful of riot defendants were on active duty, including an army reservist who wore a Hitler mustache at his job at a naval base. brings us this final offering here in the Bistro Cafe part of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Prosecutors working to convict Kyle Rittenhouse in the shootings of three people during a protest against police brutality in Wisconsin have introduced as evidence surveillance video taken from an FBI airplane circling thousands of feet above the chaos. Rittenhouse killed Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber and wounded Gage Grosskurtz during the demonstration in Kenosha in August of 2020, his trial began Monday. Rittenhouse argues that he fired in self-defense after the men attacked him. Prosecutors say he inserted himself into a volatile situation and that the video from the plane would show he chased Rosenbaum. Aerial surveillance of protests is actually very common, according to an August 2020 Air Force Inspector General report. The National Guard used surveillance planes to watch over demonstrations in D.C., Minnesota, Arizona, and California after George Floyd's death in Minneapolis that May. The FBI used aircraft to monitor protests in Ferguson following the 2014 police shooting of Michael Brown and in Baltimore to track protests following Freddie Gray's death in police custody in 2015. Democrat Barack Obama, Democrat, was presiding during both of those events. Law enforcement also used aerial surveillance to monitor a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017 that turned deadly. Republican Donald Trump was president at that time. An AP investigation in 2015 found that the FBI had built a fleet of at least 50 surveillance planes that flew more than 100 flights over 11 states during a one-month span in the spring of that year under the Obama administration. The AP traced the planes to at least 13 fake companies designed to obscure the identity of the aircraft and the pilots. The AP review also found that the DEA had at least 92 surveillance aircraft as of 2011 under Obama, and the U.S. Marshal Service also has operated its own aerial surveillance program. 
Ashley Gorski, an ACLU attorney who specializes in surveillance issues, said government agencies clearly flew more aerial surveillance missions during Black Lives Matter protests last year when Trump was president. The result here was particularly aggressive, she said. It does seem the response was unusual and unprecedented. Pilots can shoot video of the scenes below them using standard cameras, infrared sensors that pick up body heat and light sensors with enough resolution to show building features, basic vehicle features, and movements, such as people walking or riding bicycles. The planes can also carry technology that mimics cell phone towers, enabling agencies to track people's cell phones, even if they are not making a call or in public. Much of the technology was developed for use by the U.S. military in Iraq as part of a project dubbed Gorgon Stare, after the mythical Greek monster that could turn men to stone with a mere glance. Well, let's get to our break, and when we get back from that break, we will go through weather from around the world, then we will finish up the stories that we've curated for you today. You are listening to West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, and we will be right back. You are listening to NetworksRadio.com. Please hang up and try again. From a point at sea to the circles of your mind, a new force is at work for planetary transformation. New radio for a new earth. He seems sorry. We very clearly told him not to look up there. I'm honestly impressed that he was able to do it. Right? What, did he balance on that big chair? Yeah, I mean, I guess he'll just know what his gifts are this year. I really thought we had hidden them well. If they can find their presence, they can find a gun. 911, what is your emergency? Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and N Family Fire. This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. As fall turns to winter, the flu season will be upon us in force. The best way to avoid influenza is to get immunized. Everyone six months and older should be vaccinated. Those at increased risk for flu complications include children under the age of five and adults 65 and older, people with chronic health problems such as heart disease, asthma, and diabetes, and pregnant women. To get your annual flu vaccine, see your health care provider or go to a pharmacy, grocery store, or clinic in your area. If you get influenza, talk with your health care provider right away about antiviral medication. Thank you for joining us on A Minute of Health with CDC. For the most accurate health information, visit www.cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. Hi, it's Tom. Could we humbly suggest your donation to netrootsradio.com? All we've got to run this 24-hour powerhouse of progressive resistance radio is what comes out of our own wallets. And you, you are our biggest donor. It doesn't take much, $3, $5. Just go to the bottom of our netrootsradio.com page and hit our secure donate button. Heck, you can even make a recurring contribution. So donate what you'd like at the bottom of our netrootsradio.com's homepage. 
because you are our biggest donor. NetRootsRadio.com. Together, we are Resistance Radio. What is so supreme about the Supreme Court? I mean, besides being housed in an imposing marble building, being the final stop on America's judicial train, and having its nine members look photogenically authoritarian in those full-body black robes. And yes, its existence is written into the Constitution. But so is Congress, and no one thinks of it as anything supreme. We 330 million Americans are told we must obey the law as defined by a half-dozen unelected lawyers on this court. Why should we democratic citizens do that? After all, these legalistic elites have no actual power to force their personal beliefs on us. There's no Supreme Court army. In fact, their sole source of power is one that is intangible, extremely fragile, and easily frittered away. Public trust. We should go along with their rulings only if they appear to be fair and honest, not based on personal whim or partisan ideology, and not meant to extend plutocratic power over the people. As Justice Elena Kagan rightly put it, the only way we can get people to do what we think they should do is because people respect us. That's where the present majority of far-right-wing appointees have failed so abjectly. Rather than meeting a lofty standard of judiciousness, All six have pulled the court down into the mire of crass Republican politics. They've corrupted the system and jeggered the law to decree that corporate campaign cash is free speech, that the state can take over women's bodies, that the Republican Party can unilaterally shut millions of voters out of America's voting booths, and so awful much more that enthrones the few over the many. This is Jim Hightower saying, Respect? Trust? The Republican court is already down to 40% public approval rating, having surrendered its legitimacy to be a governing authority over us. Howdy ho, folks. Thanks for tuning in and sharing my weekly commentaries. Also, please join me for a live web show I host every other Tuesday, the Hightower Lowdown Happy Hour at the Chat and Chew Cafe. You can join the action live online as I chat with grassroots leaders and progressive sparklies from around the country. Go to HightowerLowdown.org slash chat and chew to find out about upcoming guests and watch past episodes. That's HightowerLowdown.org slash chat and chew. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1879. That was the day that Will Rogers was born in Ulaga, Indian Territory, in what later became Oklahoma. Rogers grew up on a ranch and by 10th grade had dropped out of school to be a cowboy. Skilled with a lasso, he became a cowboy entertainer first in vaudeville, then in silent film. Rogers also had a syndicated column and a radio show where he became a popular political commentator. With quick wit and humor, Rogers helped to shape public opinion. He brought humor to serious issues in a way later echoed by the likes of John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Rogers often talked about the plight of the American worker. In 1931, he was asked to give a radio address for President Herbert Hoover's Organization on Unemployment. Rogers expressed the urgency of the unemployment that was sweeping the nation during the Great Depression. He said, quote, The only problem confronts this country today is at least 7 million people are out of work. 
that's our only problem. There is no, there, there is no other one before us at all. It's to see that every man that uh, wants to, able to work, is allowed to find a place to, to go to work, and also to arrange some way of getting a more equal distribution of the, of the wealth in country. Now, uh, the prohibition, we hear a lot about that. Well, that, that. That's nothing to compare to your neighbor's children that, that are hungry. Here we are in a country with, with more wheat and more corn and more money in the bank and more cotton, more everything in the world. There's not a product that you can name that we haven't got more of it than any country ever had in, in the face of the earth. And yet we've got people starving. Thank you for accompanying us here to the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, Metro Shrimp and Grits Thursdays. We always begin weather from around the world along the banks of the Rogue River and the Rogue River Valley of Southern Oregon on the west coast of the continental United States of America, where it is currently 52 degrees Fahrenheit, expecting a high of only 55 Uh, Cloudy with occasional rain, mainly in the morning with winds out of the southwest at 5 to 10 miles per hour. And that rain mainly in the morning will bring almost a quarter inch of rain, mainly in the morning. A few clouds overnight with loads in the mid-40s, winds light and variable, and occasional light rain tomorrow with highs around 52. Winds light and variable should have another quarter inch of rain. And it looks like we will have rain throughout the rest of the week, which is only tomorrow. And then we do have uh, a forecast of snow once again on Sunday. They had rescinded that yesterday, and now it's back on today. And then rain through the middle of the week uh, next week, and hopefully a bit of a drying out period because I still need to have that cement, the concrete around the house uh, coated so we don't slip in the snow. No, we don't want that. Well, confirmed cases of coronavirus in Jackson County in the southern part of Oregon continue to rise. We now stand at 236,094, and we have now have confirmed deceased. Nine more confirmed deceased, and we are now at 329. We were at 320 yesterday. Looks like ragweed pollen is rated low outside the window, even though it's raining, mainly in the morning. The air quality index for the region is good at 29 parts per million, and the daytime UV index is low at level 2. Barometric pressure is rising at 29.86 inches. Visibility is at 7 miles, and relative humidity is at 88%. Weather from around the world is brought to you by a crowd of crowdsourced weather stations that a crowd crowdsources from around the world. London is 50 degrees and cloudy. Paris is 51 and cloudy. Rome is 65 and partly cloudy. Kiev is 51 and fair. Kabul is 50 and cloudy. 
Hong Kong is 74 degrees and fair. Tokyo is 60 degrees and partly cloudy. Sydney, Australia is 65, and they have showers in the vicinity. San Francisco, California is 58 degrees and mostly cloudy. And New York, New York is a brisk 45 degrees Fahrenheit and fair. And that is weather from around the world, brought to you by a crowd of crowdsourced weather stations that a crowd crowdsources from around the world. Daria Litvinova of the Associated Press brings us this first amuse-bouche here at the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Daily coronavirus cases and deaths in Russia remained at their highest numbers of the pandemic yesterday, Wednesday, as more regions announced they were extending existing restrictions in an effort to tame the country's unrelenting surge of infections. Russia's state coronavirus task force reported 40,443 new confirmed cases from a day earlier. It was the fifth time in seven days that the country reported more than 40,000 infections. The task force also reported a daily record of 1,189 COVID-19 deaths. Russia is five days into a nationwide non-working period that the government introduced to curb the spread of the virus. Last month, Putin ordered many Russians to stay off work between October 30 and November 7. He authorized regional governments to extend the number of non-working days if necessary. Officials in Russia's Novograd region, located 310 miles northwest of Moscow, said that the time away from workplaces should last another week. Governors of at least Three other regions have said they were considering extending the non-working period. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that no decision on a possible nationwide extension has been made. In Moscow and the surrounding region, which together account for nearly 25% of new daily infections, the non-working period will not be extended beyond November 7th, officials said. Je te donne ce mon amour pour la vie entière La promesse de me trouver à tes genoux Aussitôt que tu m'appelles, rester toujours fidèle C'est tout, c'est tout Je te donne tous mes printemps, mes étés de mer Mes automnes, quand les feuilles tombent partout Si ce n'est pas une bonne affaire Je te donne tous mes hivers Anonymous staff at Reuters brings us this final amuse-bouche here at the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. 
An international rights watchdog named El Salvador is the most unsafe country for women in Latin America and the Caribbean in a new report published yesterday, Wednesday. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights said in the report it had great concern over El Salvador and called on the government to strengthen protections of women who are victims of violence. There have been 97 femicides reported in El Salvador this year, a country of six 6.7 million people. According to government data, there were 130 reported last year. The UN Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean says El Salvador has the highest rate of femicide on the continent of 3.3 per 100,000 people. The agency said in its report, the Salvadoran government should create a reparation fund for femicide victims. The commission also signaled concern over El Salvador's criminalization of abortion, which is illegal even in cases of rape or when the woman's life is at risk. Well, that brings us to the end of our broadcast period for the day. But you do know Netroots Radio broadcasts on, and we will meet up tomorrow for Blue Moon Spirits Fridays, and we deserve it. So do stay tuned to Netroots Radio all day and all night for all the breaking news as it breaks. And we'll meet up here tomorrow, right here in West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Bon appétit. Du soleil vert, des dentelles et des théères, des photos de bord de mer, d'un manche à d'hiver. Je voudrais de la lumière, comme en Nouvelle-Angleterre. Je veux changer d'atmosphère, d'un manche à d'hiver. Je voudrais du frais d'Aster Revoir un latte coère Je voudrais toujours te plaire Ton mon jardin d'hiver Je veux déjeuner par terre Comme au long de golfe clair Ton passer les yeux ouverts Ton mon jardin d'hiver
Please leave us a review on iTunes. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.